Hello. So this week we're going to be talking about saudade, which is an emotion that is said to be unique to Portuguese-speaking cultures, and use that to segue into a larger discussion about nostalgia in American media. I'm Nathan. I'm Joseph. And this is Silent Generation. And saudade is a really interesting term because it describes an emotion of longing that is purely positive. And you can think about it as being like nostalgia, where nostalgia is a positive emotion of longing for places and time periods, but it has no negative connotations. So daji, in contrast, is a similar feeling, but it's for people. And while it's purported to be unique to people of Portuguese-speaking cultures, we're going to walk you through how you likely have felt it in other ways, and again, segue that into a larger discussion about nostalgia in media. It's a good topic, though, because I actually wrote my undergrad thesis on Saudade. Mm-hmm. I did not. Um, and so I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's fun to think about something as abstract as just like an emotion and how we uh, try and like harness it to words and uh, make it feel understood. That's one of the things that makes this really difficult to understand. So trying to definitively say that you understand the exact emotion someone else is feeling is sort of like being able to definitively say you are perceiving the same color as they are. Mm. It's only really through translation that you can say that you do understand it. It took me, honestly, a year of, of thorough research to really understand the contours of what it was or what sodaji is, and then to actually say that I felt it myself. All right, so hit us with the definition. So saudade is an emotion of longing, but unlike other emotions of longing, this one isn't negative. So whereas people often say that, you know, sadness is making them depressed or that someone just died and they're going through um, a really tough time, saudade is strictly a positive emotion. And you can kind of conceptualize it as being similar to nostalgia. So no one would ever say that nostalgia is making them depressed because nostalgia, while it is an emotion of longing and it is an emotion of memory, it is purely positive. And Sodaji is similar to this. There are a couple of other different characteristics of Sodaji, like it's oftentimes used in the plural form because it's so intense. It know, also, yeah, that was very interesting to me. I really thought it was just going to be used in the singular, but it's like, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like an English equivalent of that, of like, <laughs> like I don't think it was like I have a case of the Sundays because that's like a a pluralized thing, but that's not like a perfect example. Um, or it's like miseries. People say like, oh, all these miseries or something. But yeah, that was kind of a surprise for me. But I don't also don't know typical sentence construction in Portuguese. So yeah, like they'll oftentimes say like utenius uh, sadagis or I have sadagi. They'll say that too about like anger, um, usually negative emotions. Oh, pluralized. But saudade isn't negative. And so for myself, again, it took me like many years to say that I definitively um, felt saudade, but it was only after um, I had a childhood dog that I had between the ages of 10 and 27, who died about a year ago. Um, but it was only upon her death that I really understood what saudade was because I was able to experience missing or longing without bereavement, without oh. feeling like there was tragedy or anything wrong. Because my dog lived past the age so most wildly times So wildly past the age of a dog. Was it a small dog? 
Yeah, it was a dachshund. Okay, yeah, that's fair. It was named Midge, actually. That's such a cute name for a dog. I so it's, it's a cute name, but it's actually a little bit controversial. Can you guess why? Midge? Is it named after a woman? After a controversial? <laughs> no. Okay. So my grandma named it. It's her name was short for Midget. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't name a dachshund little person, but also that dog was named what 18 years ago, right? It passed away yeah. a year ago. 17. Different world, you know. Yeah. Um, so I like when I tried. I've only learned the term now, so I've been trying to retroactively apply it. Nothing. I haven't been hit by any saudage in the past like week of research on this. But if I had to retroactively apply it, like positive missing of things, it's interesting that it is so locked to like missing people. Um, I think sometimes I miss like stages of time. Maybe that's more pure, like reflective nostalgia, or something. But I think it's locked. It's locked into people because. Portuguese already has the word nostalgia, yeah, you know, yeah, nostalgia, yeah. and they use that in the exact same way, where they will describe, you know, how they missed the '90s or they missed a restaurant that was on their corner mm -hmm. 10 years ago, as nostalgia, um, and so they're able to differentiate the two feelings. Yeah, and so for your thesis, you interviewed how many people again? Yeah, so for my thesis, I worked with Brazilian international students, um, most of which who weren't students at the undergrad university I was attending, um, about their experiences feeling saudade, because they were a good population, because they're away from home, away from family, and they were subject to these feelings more, theoretically. But over the course of researching them, what I ultimately came up with as my idea after I conducted all of my ethnographic research um, was that it actually is translated in practice. Um, so while the emotion is purported to describe something that is highly specific, it can be functionally translated. Mm -hmm. If you just substitute it with missing or you just say uh, longing, that's usually yeah. sufficient. Mm -hmm. And very rarely would the interlocutors, <laughs> the research participants, very cool infrequently would they, in everyday conversation with an American, would they so have to say... Insert it, just loan word it into there? Or, yeah. or they, very rarely would they have to be like, okay, wait, I need to explain <laughs> this <laughs> like, let me, yeah. emotion that uh, is unique Only we to have, yeah. Portuguese speakers. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think that once you have the word in your vocabulary, you can start to feel it more. But I don't think it's, of course, unique to only people who speak mm -hmm. Portuguese. I like that some of the, what I was reading about, like why it emerges here, there's like one other example of it being used in a similar way in like so one part of Spain. Galicia. Right? In Galicia, yeah. Which is the um, part of Spain directly north of Portugal. Oh, well, yeah, that tracks, I guess. But People. if you look at a map of Spain compared to the rest of Europe, uh, if you think about it, there were so many like little kingdoms and provinces mm -hmm. that were absorbed into like countries mm -hmm. like France and Germany. Yeah. But Spain, it's like, okay, they, might let, they left out a really big chunk. <laughs> like if you look at a map, it yeah. kind of is like, uh, why did they, that part didn't consolidate, like mm -hmm. why? Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there is like cultural overlap between Galicia and Portugal. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that you have all these little tiny villages and stuff, the like modern borders we have, like someone's gonna get left on the wrong side in some way. But I, I saw some things trying to tie the origins of Saudade to like, the kind of seafaring nature of the Portuguese people, the fact they have always, like since before travel was easy, they've been traveling and they've been in these situations. Like even before like 
colonial times, they were still like a fisherman people. So you'd be gone and you'd be in a situation where you're away from your family. And then even now, like with modern Brazilians, like, I don't know, at my, at my college, we had this, like, there was a, some kind of temporary program that was STEM focused in Brazil that just meant that we had tons of Brazilian students for one year. And then like most of them left. And then there were just like other kids who weren't a part of that program. And they're like, oh, I'm still here. That, <laughs> like, I think that was because of Lula. So um, this would have been 2014. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because of Lula. Oh, so Lula was this very popular president in Brazil. He was actually now president again, but mm -hmm. very left-leaning. And he was sponsoring all these programs for um, Brazilian college students to come study, including in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, that's actually sort of how I got into <laughs> my fascination with Brazil. So yeah. around then, well, not 2014, this would have been 2016, but I went on like two dates with two Brazilian guys. And I thought they were fine. But then a few years later, as I was approaching the later half of college, I was sort of thinking about doing like a Fulbright scholarship after I finished. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't have any direct connection to any countries. My family's been in Chicago 150 years. So I thought Brazil was kind of cool after meeting these Brazilian guys. Yeah. But it also just felt like a, a culture that would appreciate outside perspectives because mm -hmm. it's not monocultural. No, it's yeah. super diverse. And within their country, there is no like one Brazilian or one subset of Brazilians that would mm -hmm. be most the best to speak about like cultural matters. Um, mm -hmm. An outsider in many ways would have just as valid of a observation as um, a native perspective. Yeah. No, I, I do think that like, I mean, America and Brazil, both like diverse new world countries. Um, I think, there, I think our parallels are very interesting. I don't know, they're like, yeah, democratic backsliding at the same time, like Bolsonaro and Trump. But I don't know, all these ways that we like pop up with similarities. Yeah, how long did you spend there? So I actually got like a grant to go to Brazil, which they distributed it far too late. <laughs> like I was supposed to be like distributed these funds, like and I was gonna plan to like visit them during my like winter break. I got it months later and like towards the middle of when I was supposed to be like kind of wrapping up my thesis. So basically mm. I just used the money I got to go to Rio de Janeiro and I stayed with this guy that was one of the two guys I went on dates with. So I met him one time in Chicago a few years prior and then I went to Brazil and stayed with him and his family for a week straight. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the perks of being gay is like you're in a secret <laughs> society where you can just invite yeah. yourself in people's homes. Oh, yeah. Stay with their families and oh. yeah. Interesting, yeah. No. Yeah, but yeah, um, I was in Rio for a week. Um, it was kind of a crazy week. It was the week when um, Mahiel Franco uh, or Mario Franco, Franco um, got assassinated. Um, she was this Brazilian lefty politician who was on Rio um, local government or city government. She uh, was a friend of Glenn Greenwald's. Um, but yeah, she was shot like the day I landed. So there were all these protests. There was also a yellow fever outbreak. Um, <laughs> and also the city at the time was under martial law because like 500... I think it was something like 500 people got killed by police the year prior. Uh, it was very chaotic. Um, maybe we don't have all the similarities I was talking about. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe America and Brazil are their own things. I take back what I said. <laughs> yeah. But no, I had a good time. It was also super hot, though, because it was during... Um, their summer. Their summer. It was like... It, one of the days I was there, it was like 114 um, degrees Fahrenheit. So really hot. 
But yeah, um, I was just with this one person uh, learning about Brazilian culture in general, but also doing research with him and speaking with him. But most of the research I did was in the U.S. with um, Brazilian international students. But I was able to rope him in under, under that definition because he had previously been an international student. So mm -hmm. it kind of worked. Yeah. No, yeah. My, like, of all those Brazilians who, like, came and left, um, one of them joined my fraternity. Um, and we've since played, like, rugby together for two years now. I don't know, I always pick his brain on this kind of stuff. And so, not that I have an ethnographic study of one person, <laughs> like, but I mean, he's very, like, I think he's had to explain his culture a lot to people. He's put himself, like, kind of out there in terms of his sociability. He's a very social, gregarious guy. But, um, so I think he's always been in a position where he is the outsider and he needs to, like, kind of explain what he's doing. He works in, like, an he works in, like manufacturing, which I feel is maybe atypical for expats who come here. I feel like they go into more conventional, like, white-collar professional things. Um, he is still a white-collar professional, but he works in this world. And so he's used to kind of expressing, like, uniqueness about his culture. And things that he said to me that have stood out have been, like, like, we're a very social, gregarious people. Like, so we're on this gay rugby team together. And he told me that, like that gay American guys, like, personality-wise, feel more like straight Brazilian guys. Like, he thinks he gets along with them more. They're, like, openness with their emotions and willingness to dance and just <laughs> all these things that we cordon off in America behind, like, you know, expectations of men. He says that there's, like, I don't know, a lot more, like, Brazilians. Uh, and he's, he... Uh, he calls his family a lot. They do a lot of voice messages. It's like all the time he has to like take a little step to the side and do like a record a WhatsApp voice message. So yeah, just like longing and that kind of stuff. Like he's just always like keeping yeah, this open communication. And there's the advantage of the time zone difference is like it's a huge, you know, like as the crow flies mile distance, but it's not a huge time zone difference. So he's able to do that. Yeah, so Brazilian men definitely are more open with their emotions, which is something I would get into with interviews with people. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, do you feel ashamed when you feel sadaji or mm -hmm. do you hide it? Never. Um, but yeah, Brazilian men are very open. Like crying in public is fine. Wow. Um, but yes, the voice messages thing is such a thing. Um, mm -hmm. I use WhatsApp. Have you heard of WhatsApp? Yes, even though I'm, <laughs> even though I'm a domestic American, I have heard of yeah. WhatsApp. I have cool international friends. <laughs> yeah, um, it's very popular in Brazil and I use it to communicate with the Brazilian friends that I have. Um, but yeah, it, it'll set the conversation back though if they send me a voice message, because if they send me a voice message, I'll be like, I'm on the bus, I'm on the train, I'm walking, yeah. I, can't, no. I can't listen to this. Although now I have AirPods, it's a lot mm -hmm. more realistic, but yeah, uh, yeah I, it's fun, but also it, it'll like sometimes set the conversation back 24 hours, because I won't listen to it mm -hmm. for, until the following day. Yeah. yeah. What's your preferred messaging platform? I, I actually like calling people. I don't do it. We call now, but I feel like we both have, I don't know. I feel like there's that classic like millennial slash Zoomer meme of like, if someone calls, calls me, I'm going to lose my mind. But um, when I called you mo most recently this week, you were busy getting blasted. I, 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 it was a company outing. I was, and I felt so bad because it was like not a reasonable time to be getting like, we had started this event like way too early. Um, but no, so I felt maybe a guilt about that as well. Um, yeah. uh, but no, I think a phone call is just so efficient. You can really like knock out details of stuff. I have one other friend I was hanging out with today, actually, who I'd never feel ashamed about cold calling him. I think it also overlaps with if you're able to just randomly talk to strangers, you're okay with cold calling. I think those are two things. 
So whenever I'm like out and about with him, actually more so than when I'm alone. When I'm alone, I don't like, I talk to strangers, I'd say more than the average guy my age. Um, but something about like, whenever I'm out with him, he's doing it. And then I feel like I should, might as well do it and like as well. I don't know where that comes from. But, uh, yeah, I'm actually not. No, okay. So I'm good at talking to strangers once the conversation starts, but I'm not approachable. And I'm also <laughs> not good at approaching people in public. Mm-hmm. Like I think <laughs> we talked about recently, I told you, like, I've never been hit on in a gay bar, and I'm a gay guy. Uh, <laughs> you've probably been hit on in yeah. every gay bar every time mm. you've gone. <laughs> I just smile a lot. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Uh, maybe that gets caught the wrong way. Um, I yeah. think sometimes I've met other people like this. I think sometimes when I'm confused, I smile. Um, or when I'm bored, I don't know. Like, I think it's a good thing to default to. Um, yeah, I just glare. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think I don't, I don't want to intimidate people. Not that I'm some kind of like, but, but I'm tall. I'm like, I'm like 200 pounds, but I don't want to like, I don't know. I think I just need to be disarming. I think I do that in a lot of ways, but yeah. But yeah, I like phone calls too. That's my primary way that I try to keep up with family. Mm-hmm. With phone calls, like this is, I say I'm ashamed of this, but I'm not because I actually am proud of it. But like I, I call my grandparents like twice a week and it just makes my day, it clearly makes their day. They, you know, they don't have much going on out there, but I don't know. It feels so good. I don't know. Part of it, I'm going to say this is a little macabre, but it's like, I don't know how long they're going to be around for. I'm really trying to like make up for the times I wasn't calling them in college and that kind of period. But um, I don't know when you call them more frequently, like you spend less time updating on just like everything that's happened and you do kind of get more into like I don't know, asking them about like their emotions and what they're feeling and what's happening, what's happening next. But a lot of times we have, we're having pretty nuts and bolts conversations, like just about like the weather, you know, um, what birds are in their yeah. area. Yeah, I, I only have one living grandparent, but when I call her, it's usually we talk about like the weather and what she ate and what she's watching on TV, because mm-hmm. um, there's really not that much to talk about. But I try to call her pretty frequently. But honestly, I would call her more, but there just isn't that much to talk about. Yeah. We went into that a little bit. And so I, I think I sometimes tell my grandparents like more than maybe other people do. I don't know. I just, I think we also, they're very nervous. We hide a lot of information from them. Like we did a family trip to, to Egypt um, back when we were living in Germany. And we just didn't tell them until after we got back. So they wouldn't worry. But like, I was going to hide when I got a concussion from them, but I just... It was became clear that I wasn't playing in games, and so they probably like they were asking me why, and I couldn't have any excuse. <laughs> I just told I, the truth. I actually have siblings. Well, I have a lot of siblings. I have like nine, uh, but I I know of at least a few incidents where my some siblings went on vacations and didn't tell the others because they didn't want to be judged or something. <laughs> I really didn't get it. <laughs> judge for going on a vacation? Yeah, I did not understand, but yeah, I. I don't get afraid when people say they're traveling because airplanes are one of the safest modes of transit. Um, <laughs> That's such like a, I don't know, analytical way to like, that is, that is true. Uh-huh. Actually, there are different ways to like measure safety. Like there's the hours you travel per trip. It's the safest way to travel, but it evens out a little more when you consider like distance and time traveling, then it's not like crazy, crazy safe. But you have to understand, if people are afraid of flying, like, they don't understand or care about those numbers, you know? It's just more the visceral feeling of it. Like, you know, we're not meant to do it. Um, we're not meant to do a lot of things, but... Yeah. I mean, I, I'm more afraid being on the highway than I am on a plane. Yeah, that does just wig me out that we've all just been kind of like, that is expected of people. But yeah. yeah. Which we're actually just on a highway together. No, 1994 is 
wild. Like there's like a different, I don't know, the speed that people go there and just so close together. That was like, I don't know, I think, I feel like in Las Vegas, our lanes are wider. Like even in the more city parts of it. I don't know. Yeah, there's a dark energy. It's just like, it's such a, a shitty welcome to Chicago. Like when I've come from like Michigan or like I was visiting a friend in Indiana a while back. And it's just like, I don't know, you're driving through like a very blighted part of the city. And then you just, and then everyone just like guns it along there. And then you see like White Sox Park. And you're like, oh wow, I'm almost like in Chicago. But yeah, we are in Chicago, but yeah. Yeah, it was cool seeing that bridge though. Um, yeah. We were by... We weren't in Hedgewish. Okay, what neighborhood did we go to? <laughs> we were in South Chicago. So, yeah. like, I don't know. It's such a confusing name because there's, like, North Chicago is actually a separate city, like, a bit north of Chicago, and but after, like, other independent cities, um, or at least towns. But, no, South Chicago is a neighborhood. It is, like, the most southern neighborhood, I would say, in Chicago. Maybe that's wrong. No, the most um, southern neighborhood is, like, Riverdale. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that that's by like 130th, which oh I know God. about because of the Red Line extension. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's basically the Skyway, which you haven't seen this. I guess you must have ridden no, on the No, I've Skyway. been on it, yeah. Yeah, but seeing it from the side is a lot different. Yeah, you really get, get a sense of like the height of it. But yeah, I don't think I've ever been that far southeast as we were just an hour or two ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, just seeing that like industrial side was really crazy. But yeah. So one other thing to touch on with Saudaji is that I think that the opposite of Saudaji is bereavement. How would you define bereavement? I actually, I don't really know if I could, I thought, man, I'm just gonna admit it. I don't, I guess I, I think of it in like the very like HR sense, like, oh yeah, bereavement leave. So for me, it's like hand in hand with grieving. Like is grieving not bereavement? Like, so when I think about bereavement, I think about how it's described by the anthropologist Renato Rizaldo. Um, and grief and a headhunter's rage. So Rosaldo was studying the Alanga people on the island of Luzon in the Philippines who were practicing headhunting, you know, hunting heads, yeah. cannibalism too, I think. Oh, wow. But he would talk to them and be like, okay, why do you keep killing people and taking their heads? And he really wasn't understanding their answer, which was, I'm upset, I lost someone. And they were getting into this really dark place. But then Rosaldo had a wife who was also an anthropologist who died while conducting field work, tragically. But then he started to sort of understand the rage that these people were feeling. And he sort of describes it in thick detail mm-hmm. in this paper. But I think of that as being the other end of the spectrum of longing and missing, mm-hmm. where one is like, it's so positive, there's no tragedy, it's just pure love, mm-hmm. which is saudaji. Um, and then the opposite is bereavement, where you're so upset that you could kill someone. Yeah, and it's like when loss turns into just pure rage. Like, yeah, that is wild. I, yeah, I don't know. I def like I've definitely experienced a lot of grief in my life, but I don't know if it's ever like translated into that like kind of rage, and definitely like not at others. I just I don't know. I, I, it's such a like a crazy. This guy, this anthropologist, how did his wife pass? Was it like? She was walking in a high area, mountain maybe, fell down, rolled, oh. hit her head. Well, that's I like, I guess with that, like, it's like a, you know, a nature, like, slash tragic accident death. And there's, like, nothing to blame there. There is, like, no, like, I don't know. If you're a headhunter, there's someone's head you can hunt out there. But, like, just being, like, vaguely mad at, like, nature and just the circumstances of life. Like, yeah, I think that would almost make me more mad. 
but having a, a locus for it. Yeah. What do you think about, we talked about this briefly, but untranslatability. I think that people love the idea of untranslatable words. I think they're very guarded by their cultures. Like, I think it's, it's something we want to believe that like there's something about our language that is, you know, intrinsic to our lived experience that like, if you're not, if you weren't there, you don't get it kind of deal. But. Yeah, I mean, I think that like translation, it's needed, but it's a very cumbersome profession and the people who do it are erudite and boring. I do think that this is one area where, okay, like in some ways you can say it's, um, I guess you can kind of say Sadaji is untranslatable just in the fact that you can't like transmit an emotion to other people. You can't really mm -hmm. say you know what they're feeling, but it does work. You can substitute a very close synonym um, and get away with it just fine. So I am skeptical of it in the case of Sodaji, but I think it's just that it's just about synonyms because if you give anyone a dictionary definition of any word, they'll be able to understand what you're saying. It's just when you're trying to substitute it with a single word that there are gaps. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only problem, really. Yeah. Um, you used the term, like, you talked about this not earlier, but I think yesterday, like about being a culture-bound syndrome. You know, yeah. you want to talk about those? So, yeah, culture-bound syndrome is a condition, a psychological condition uh, that's unique to a culture. So culture-bound syndromes are described by psychologists. This isn't as much an anthropology term. Mm -hmm. And it's actually kind of been, in some ways, discontinued as a term. Yeah. But it can describe things like um, amok, which is where the term running amok comes from. Amok syndrome is an aggressive disassociative behavioral pattern derived from Indonesia and Malaysia that led to the English phrase running amok. That's what in Wikipedia mm. says. So that's just one example of a culture-bound syndrome. Yeah. Generally, they're used to describe things or phenomenon that happen in Eastern cultures because in general, <laughs> people are better at observing cultures that are not their own. Yeah. The culture you're raised in, if you learn to analyze it, you can be very effective, but it's harder to see what's going on because it's so everyday to you. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's been suggested to be a culture-bound syndrome in the West um, is uh, anorexia and bulimia. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, really anywhere but like yeah. a rich first world country, why would you be mm -hmm. eating and throwing <laughs> up or not yeah. eating on purpose? No, yeah. It's kind of uh, a condition of the modern world. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, otherwise, culture-bound syndromes generally something negative in psychology where someone is conceptualized something within their cultural lens where mm -hmm. they are viewing it as being so important or intrinsic to what's going on that they can like get physical symptoms. Yeah. Uh, but it's not something that I would use to describe Sodaji, yeah, yeah, but uh -huh. I think it's a useful term or an idea yeah. that something could be so unique to a culture. Yeah, no. Um, I was trying to think of like just homesickness as well because People also do are clear like Saudade is not like a missing for Brazil. Uh, my Brazilian friend did express that like he missed Brazil, but that was always followed Nostalgia up. Nostalgia is for places. Yeah, it can, I think it, yeah, it could be for places. I think it's also used for like objects, things, or like maybe a period in time, like a whole kind of sense of that a place, you know, a place in time. But yeah, when my friend would talk about missing Brazil, what he really missed was immediate family, like yeah, like food and stuff like that and weather. But it's always like it was always about the people. 
he did express actually like the only kind of patriotism kind of thing he did express to me was when like Bolsonaro was in power he did feel like he was kind of having it too good in America like as things were getting kind of like dicey over there he was just you know living it up like as a young professional in Chicago but also that's just him co-opting lib sensibilities where <laughs> he thinks that like he's going to be personally responsible no not for what he's about, about like being a, a 25 year old guy if he's gonna like walk in there and depose um bolsonaro but yeah no i liked his sense of that he said that like he he used to always tell me he wanted to go back to brazil um but now he's like not quite so sure i, I don't know, i'm always proud of myself for like making something of chicago for myself, but I'm just like a, an American. And so, you know, he's really made something of himself here as a foreigner. Um, and I don't know, I hope he's impressed by that. Like maybe that's why he wants to, maybe he's surprised by like what a good fit ended up being for him. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, for Brazilians, as mentioned before, they come from a multicultural society that in some ways has parallels to the United States. But um, one of the research participants I worked with through a conversation, she'd brought up how um, Brazilians don't tend to be clicky. And mm. like when they're in other countries, they're not, they don't associate with each other as much as you might see in other uh, ethnic groups. No, no, they totally were clicky at my school. They I think we, we reach a, such a critical mass of them that they could fully just be a click. But I think that once that big mass went back and we were left with like the kind of long timer Brazilians, I totally observe what you're talking about. They did hop around, they weren't just like, one big clump of Brazilians. Yeah, so it's a, there yeah. should be some kind of theory like once they reach <laughs> N plus three Brazilians yeah. and they but, but this isn't, again, just about Brazil. You, you know, Portugal, Mozambique, Angola. Oh, yeah. um, have you ever been to Portugal? Yes, just like one day on a like stopover to Germany. I was really blown away by it. I really loved it. Like I had been to Spain and Italy, but um, yeah. Were you in we Lisbon were, or what? Yeah, we were yeah. in Lisbon. Um, and yeah, I just liked the like narrow streets. I liked the comically small streetcars. Our hotel was a little like walk-up building and it was on a, like a flat iron shape, like a wedge-shaped piece of property. And we were on the third floor and we had a window like looking out on an intersection. It was like, it was like if you asked an American to like, you know, AI generate a European city. Like it was so cute and like cutesy. I just really loved it. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was in, I've been to Portugal. I went to both Porto and Braga. So the second and third largest cities, respectively. But it's probably been my favorite place I've been to in Europe. Because um, Portugal was in either World War One or World War Two, So it's very well preserved in that yeah. way. It wasn't bombed. So yeah. it does feel like you're walking in you know, a very old place. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. to me is a Chicago. And that's sort of what I look for when I travel is I yeah. like being in places that uh, have more history than we have here. Yeah. Although as I've gotten older, I've realized how historic Chicago is because as someone who grew up here, it seemed every day, but mm-hmm. I've learned that like this was a pretty exceptional place a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. which you can't say about a lot of cities in America. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. For me, it's like a sliding scale of like historical impressiveness where like Las Vegas just had no history. Like, yeah, there was like old Mormon Fort in the 1870s. There was like people starting to be there in the like 1900s and 1920s and then like the mob starting but really it's like I don't know the population exploded from like 2003 onwards like we have some squat ugly mid-century buildings from way back when 
Um, but we really have like nothing of great like age. And so Chicago blew my mind, but then like you go to you go out east and you realize that that like hard stop in Chicago around you know 1871 with the fire, like there are just places in New York that are like from the 1800s and places in Philadelphia that are from the 1700s. It's just kind of like you know that blows my mind a lot more. And then just like but then it's I think it's maybe diminishing returns of like some things are so incomprehensible like in Europe and then you go into like yeah when my family traveled to Egypt like it's just these numbers of how long ago it was is just yeah cannot be perceived. Yeah. I like that there's a tradition of stewardship for older buildings and over time they're able to integrate um, or they're able to fill a niche in the neighborhood that's different generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Lindy. Yeah. Oh, I like I like when something like just serves the exact same purpose for a long amount of time. Like there's that list of like longest running uh, businesses in the world. And the two oldest ones are like in Japan, and it's kind of debatable. One of them is a construction company, which I find really cool. They've been providing the same service of construction for like 800 years. Another one is a hotel. I think that's more impressive because that's like not an abstract concept, like a company. It's like a physical location that has served the same rough purpose, like like being a home for travelers. And then in Europe, I think the oldest thing is like a beer garden somewhere. And that's just so nice that like people have always wanted a beer and sausage and to sit underneath a tree. Um, and we've like been filling that need. And it's like, no matter how much has changed in the whole world, like people still like doing that nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. So on this, this might be a good spot to transition from Sodaji into nostalgia. Yeah. Because, well, Sodaj is cool. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to fill a whole episode. <laughs> but I do think that our culture over the past 10 years, we've experienced pretty much every form of media trying to rehash the same stories and intellectual properties to us and rebooting, like, Spider-Man, <laughs> even though <laughs> you already had a film, like, yeah. 10 years ago. Uh-huh. But it, nostalgia is really key to what we're experiencing in culture mm-hmm. right now. No, I, I don't know. It is like grim to see just heck how many things produced nowadays are just like yeah reboots of something else. Um, and I think it's interesting to see. This is like one step where like nostalgia in the past, like in the fifties. Sorry, in the eighties, there was a lot of movies being made about the fifties. I just like that kind of lag where we try and like re-understand those periods. Like, but now I think that like people's understanding of the 50s comes from watching stuff like Greece, which was made in the 80s. And so it just becomes this like uh, stacked in on itself. Like we only look at the 50s through our lens of the 80s. You know, we don't, I think people are watching more secondhand material from that period and they're watching like who actually sits down and watches some like it hot, you know? Yeah. And media sometimes can be referencing things even farther back than you realize. Like we recently watched Fright Night, this, oh, yeah. um, 1980s horror film about vampires but in the movie it became clear that uh the film when it was made was referencing like 1920s or 1930s horror yeah it was like like the golden not like the original like monster movies so those would have been in the 50s i'm trying to say um who was like not like the bald nosferatu movie from like the 30s but no who's the bella lugosi like those vampire movies and so I don't know, this movie in the 80s was framing itself as a rejection of the new wave of slasher movies, and it was doing more of a callback to classic ghosts and goblins type of horror. 
But yeah, but I think we remember it as a quintessentially 80s movie because like it is still dressed in the like garb of an 80s movie. I, I mean, I didn't even that. know about this film before I watched it. I, I kind of have an aversion to the 80s because yeah. from my perspective as an urbanist, the 70s and 80s were the worst period in American history because of what was happening with urban renewal where yeah. they were just building all of these different highways cutting through cities. Although actually low-key, that's the 50s. Yeah. But um, There's like cities, a lag into it. You yeah. Know? Like there was, I don't know, I've been watching Mad Men for like ever and like the early 60s, I feel like they had it all. Like that's one of my, one of my favorite times. They had like, they had cars, but there were still train commuters and all that. There were still so many more people down in the city. Like, but it was by the 70s and 80s, the effects were being felt. Yeah, that's when... Like, a lot of cities were at their lowest population, mm -hmm. and then they experienced a bit of a rebound in the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. Yeah. Um, I mean, it depends on a city-by-city -city basis, mm -hmm. but things were really in crisis. Like, cities were left for dead, and mm -hmm. culture at the time, people keep trying to tell me that <laughs> the 80s were cool. Like, every single movie yeah. I see is, like, somehow tapping into boomer nostalgia, but I'm just not buying it. You, you don't have to tell me the same thing a million times. What? If it was cool, we would have moved on to the 90s by now. Yeah. What is the jukebox musical with Tom Cruise? It was from the 2010s. I think it was Rock of Ages, that one. And it's, I don't know, jukebox musicals and musicals in general. You know like that what that means, right? That's like, like musicals. Uh, no. So a jukebox musical takes pop songs and works them all together into a musical. So it, it like it can have some original songs, but like Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical. It's it's assembling all these ABBA songs with a story, like commercial um, music. Yeah, it's take yeah it's taking commercial pop music and re-exporting it onto Broadway, basically. Yeah, um, there's a certain um, category of pop music where I have heard it so many times in so many commercials, so many grocery stores. Uh, I can't even associate it with music. I just hear it <laughs> and I think about. Yeah. Uh, I, like the just the middle points of life, like just the kind of like being in a Ross, like that's like yeah. It just yeah. makes me feel. I've never had a headache in my life, fun fact, but it feel, makes me feel like I should get a headache <laughs> when I hear music Your like that. of a headache, yeah. Um, no, I, I I'm less hard on the '80s, but there is like yeah, not too much I pull from it. Um, I'm big on like vintage clothes and fashion. And I would say, like, I do have a cutoff around, like, I think the 60s and 70s, maybe. Though I do, like, grab my parents' stuff from the 90s. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I think synthetics were on the rise. I mean, since the... I was actually dumbing through some vintage stuff at a, clo at a store this morning. And it was, like, this really interesting little cardigan from the 50s. And it said proud on it. 100% acrylic. Because that was like a cool thing back then. Like, oh, wow, it's not crazy. You made a whole sweater out of like plastic fibers. And it's like, no, it's itchy and it doesn't breathe. Like, it's terrible. But it was just bragged about back then. So, I don't know. And the 80s were like, I don't know, architecture-wise, like, postmodernism wasn't like, maybe that was roaring at that time. But like, I don't know, that, I think the high water mark of mid-century modern architecture had pretty much fully passed. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to shit on the 80s. But I do want to talk about like, when it comes to nostalgia, like nostalgia for technology and objects is something I also have. Uh, I was like a film camera kid um, in high school and college. But I think I kind of draw a line where like there's some film camera kids you meet and they're like, oh, you got to get the, I forget what model it is, the K1000. Yeah, the, like the Pentax K1000. It's 
manual everything. Like you have to control every single setting. You have to wind it every time. And I'm like, I do not need to do all of that. Like, I don't like that level of purist. The like camera I had had autofocus. It didn't have to wind. Like I had to replace the batteries every so often, but I liked still getting film, but getting those creature comforts. And that is like, what that is, is a technology reaching maturity, as they call it, where it becomes more and more ease of use. The division between like high-end user and like entry-level user starts to diminish. Um, and usually that just kind of like peters out and ends with a mature technology. Like farming is regarded as a mature technology. Like there's not a year over year like crazy increase. It's just kind of like modulating pesticides and lightly improving yields. But like with cameras, there was there was a jump in technology. Like film cameras were becoming so mature, but then an adjacent like side technology was developing independently and then was imported in, and that's like digital photography. But I always think that like the last example of mature technology is so like well put together. Like the final film cameras produced in the 2010s had all the like good things you expect from a modern camera, but you were still at the end of the day getting a very like warm, lifelike film photo. But yeah. And then like yeah. my dad's a photographer, so I should know about what you're talking about. But out of rebellion, don't. you don't. Yeah. No. You refuse to learn about cameras. No, it's just when a man in your life is an expert on something, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes you just want to let them do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's I know. Uh, I, I thought you were saying you zone out. Now <laughs> like I now I have a photographer slash videographer boyfriend, so yeah. I'm 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 gonna uh, coast still. I don't need to learn that it. too much. <laughs> um I think other examples of that. I, my car is from the late 2000s, and I kind of like those more than cars from like the early 2010s. I think they got more bulbous in the 2010s, and I think they were maybe better in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. There's a kind of like lightness and slickness to it. Um, when I've driven newer cars, I don't like it. I feel like I'm being very like, I don't know, held in. I kind of like that my car is like shitty and rattles a little bit. I feel like there's, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, there's less screens. Like the one screen I have in my Volvo is like literally like a, like a, like a calculator screen basically, like a Game Boy screen where it's yeah. two colors. Yeah. yeah. For me, while I'm dunking on 70s and 80s nostalgia, mm -hmm. I do feel um, nostalgic. I mean, I'm, I wasn't born in the 70s or 80s. No, either. Yeah, I guess we're, we've, all, we've feel, been talking about all this nostalgia for stuff we weren't there I for. I feel nostalgic is, uh, for like the 1890s to 1930s. That is my time. <laughs> like was, before, yeah. you know, like cars really took off when mm -hmm. American mass transit was at its peak, when skyscrapers and high rises were being invented and they were at their most yeah. beautiful. That was the period that I feel like we need to get back to. Mm-hmm. I feel that too, but then like, yeah, as we were driving through these like industrial stretches of South Chicago today, I was like, I think what we forget about the early stages of cities is that like when Chicago was in, you know, the 1910s and 20s, like the river was an open sewer, <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. there's a lot like rougher things we don't think about, like I, the parks that we have now, we didn't have then. There's I mean, between like, between 1840 and 1890, Chicago went from something like 10,000 people to a million. Yeah. Um, that is cool, I guess. I mean, it would have been dynamic and exciting to live through it. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, that's before like infrastructure, like yeah. sewers. Uh, it's mm -hmm. it's actually not tenable or possible yeah. uh, in the modern world yeah, to grow in yeah. that way that quickly. Mm -hmm. but, that's why I always get pissed when people talk about like, oh, why does it take so long to build things nowadays? Like the Empire State Building was like built in a year under budget, like all that kind of thing. It's like, it had no AC. <laughs> like it had... <laughs> Yeah. Like, but also so the walls things. were like something like, you know, 
12 feet thick, 20 yeah, feet thick. There's stuff like that. And also they're like less safety. You can do things a lot fa like faster with less safety. Yeah. Um, there's this anecdote I read somewhere where apparently when they were building high rises in Chicago, the foremen were told that for every floor above 10 to expect one worker death. Oh my God. No, yeah. I, love, I love the old photos of like the skyscrapers being built. And it's like, I don't know. Before high-vis was invented, guys look so much cooler on job sites. Just wearing chambray, like, work shirts. You hard know. hats are hot, though. I don't, I felt the least sexy in a hard hat <laughs> when I had to wear them in, like, my union construction days. I don't know. It's also because I've always been, like, the office guy who visits the field. And so, like, I don't know. My helmet wasn't cool and covered with stickers like the longtime union guys was. It just, it just made me look more like office dork and uh, just visiting the site. But... I don't know, if I had to pick a time I was most nostalgic for, I, I think I'm gonna go back to, yeah, early 1960s. I just like that. Like, clothes had reached a point where they like, are pretty analogous to today, like small differences in tie width and lapel width and all that kind of stuff, but they don't look like crazy different like in the 20s. I don't know, there was like all the best parts of like pre-war culture, you know, the community kind of mindedness of America um, and pride, but then also this injection of just cash and prosperity from the war. I don't know. I think a lot of places had their like halcyon days during the early 1960s. I talk about like being nostalgic or something you weren't there for. My grandparents in upstate New York, like they grew up in this small town that would like just balloon in population in the summer. Like cause it had all the like great hotels of the Catskills. And just hearing about that and just how it all went away because of the advent of like cheap flights to go visit either sunnier places in America or overseas travel, like, I don't know, I wish I could have been there for the height of, like, the Borscht Belt, as they called it, the Jewish, like, yeah, hotels. Yeah, I mean, golden days are always in the past, though. It's very hard for someone to realize, well, they're living through something, that they're at its peak mm -hmm. or zenith. Maybe we're, maybe the Wisconsin Dells are in their zenith right now. <laughs> what are they, no, they're in their zenith in the 90s, Oh, probably. really? Is that was a, what, have they fallen on harder? I've never been to the Wisconsin Dells, and I feel bad No, I mean, it. this is just my guess, so... The American middle class was larger in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I feel like the target audience for those Constantels is very middle class. Yeah, no, definitely. Where even are they? I don't even know where they are <laughs> on the map. I'm kind of curious. Well, as a kid. Well, yeah, yeah. as a child, I went. Yeah. yeah. They're like strangely deep into Wisconsin. You have to go like. <laughs> I yeah. remember one time as a child. Two, three hours. I was in the Wisconsin Dells and I was in some sort of store and. For some reason, there was like this pond filled with baby crocodiles, and I was just I just Real went up to crocodiles? it. Real baby crocodiles? Yeah. Wow. I, I don't I don't know why there were baby crocodiles, but anyway, I I almost went in. Uh, it didn't happen, but yeah. That's <laughs> wild. Okay, just let's see where this is on a map. Yeah. Oh yeah, and to non-Chicagoland Midwest people, Wisconsin Dells is the water park capital of the world. Oh, that's uh, like out there. That isn't even between Madison and Milwaukee. It's Oh, yeah, it's, it's further like, than Madison, yeah. Oh, there's actually a train stop, though, for Amtrak. Yeah, respect. <laughs> uh, I guess I could take That's on Am the way to La Crosse, Wisconsin. They have an Amtrak out there. Yeah, there's an reason. Amtrak station called Wisconsin Dells. That's oh, cool. wow, nice. We could go there. We could go there, yeah, leave the, the cars behind. behind. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, let's think what else I'm... Have you ridden Amtrak? Yeah, I love the Amtrak. I have a... I've, before I had a car, I took it to Milwaukee. I took it to Michigan and got dumped out there. I thought that was great. I don't know. It was maybe less money than driving out there to get dumped. 
Yeah. Um, I've only really taken it to Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I want to take it to Detroit or St. Louis soon. Yeah. On the longer ones, there's like nicer stuff. They have a little like snack bar and all that. Um, have you taken yeah. trains in Europe? Uh, yeah, I took one actually between Porto and Braga when I was oh, in Portugal. Nice. It was nice. I don't. I was not as much of a rail fan back then, mm. so I uh, don't remember it as well as I would now if I took it. Mm. Yeah, no, the trains in Germany are just too nice. Like, I wish I wasn't on them because, like, I, I was enjoying Amtrak before I like went on a train in Germany and had like a nice beer in a glass, not just like some Sprite in a plastic cup from an Amtrak <laughs> dining car. Which are getting rid of on most service anyway. Yeah. Um, what else? I'm like broadly nostalgic for. I don't know. Wait, I mean, so. Yeah. What do you think would? What do you think is the solution to nostalgic culture? I think that nostalgia is a good impulse. Like it's like culture is always going to move forward. Um, but if you like just absolutely do not look backwards at all, like you're going to like lose the good things of it. I think the nostalgia is this like kind of thing that keeps like us in check as we like, you know, move forward technologically. Uh, well, I think that the root problem behind nostalgia culture is um, consolidation. Mm-hmm. So movie studios, there's only a handful of big ones now. All the best ones come from the smallest distributor, A24. That's not a coincidence. I'm sure that if we had better antitrust enforcement over the past few decades, there would have been less consolidation and we would have a better movie market. Although low key, I do think that movies generally are kind of lowbrow. I don't think it's the best medium. <laughs> Just the um, yeah. But I, I do think that. that like a lot of this has to do both for movies, but really any medium, video games, mm-hmm. books, I don't, I don't even know. Yeah. But all of this nostalgia is just the result of corporate executives saying that a certain IP is valuable and they need to tap into it again. Mm-hmm. Like how they're about to redo Harry Potter. Yeah, they're just waiting. No they're just reason. There time. is yeah. no reason to redo Harry no. Potter. It's, it's really just about this IP has not made enough money recently. Yeah. We need to go and mm-hmm. milk it again. And they've been like trying to reboot it and like drain every little forgotten area of like outside lore of the books with all the like Fantastic Beasts series, but like just people are not I've, responding. I've seen all to three of the Fantastic Beasts. What has led you to do that? <laughs> I, I, I have HBO for free. I, I'm, yeah. I'm uh, bumming off someone else, but yeah. okay, the first one's all right. It, it kind yeah, of, I saw that one in theaters, yeah. It kind of is from the nostalgia period I care about. Uh, they yeah. marketed to me successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, the other off. two were god awful. I did yeah. not like them. Yeah. I think it's just like it's risk aversion in media and it's, I don't know, we, the companies do what we let them get away with. At the end of the day, I think a lot of Americans, like they just want a guaranteed good time from anything. We want consistency. It's the same reason we go to, you know, Chili's and Chipotle and like all these other chains is we just want like, we just don't want like a fail state in any way. We don't want like, we want just to go to the movies and be like, oh, I recognize that. But like, this system is good for the investors. It's yeah. good for the executives. Mm-hmm. But for the consumers, they would benefit from a broader market with yeah. more choice. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like the consumers don't know what they want. Like, I would not mind if there were more, like, movies that just did not apply to me, like, did not work for me. But if there were, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, that there were more independent movies that were greater. Like, I'm okay with... A range like there, there do there always has to be some bad movies, you know. Like not everything can hit. Yeah, same goes for the housing market too. 
We need to be able to let people just build and build yeah. bad things. Mm -hmm. Because when we try to like bog things down by um, making developers jump through hoops to prove that yeah. their building will be pretty enough for the neighborhood, mm -hmm. that just results in everything slowing down. And then there's no incentive for people to actually mm -hmm. build anything that spectacular yeah. because pretty much anything that gets built is going to get sold yeah. because there's no uh there's always going to be a market for any dwelling unit like because I'm there's almost, so little produced I'm like advocate for just like like something is better than nothing i feel <laughs> when it comes to i don't know housing or also like maybe media production of just like i don't know i'm also kind of irritated by just prestige tv like there's too much of it out there like, I think maybe we need more Wait, schlock. who's producing prestige TV? Like, I'm saying, like, prestige television regarding, like, just meaning, like, the amazing shows that you must watch on television, like, Succession, or, like, you know, the very, like, middle but, to highbrow, like... But they're not even television. trying to do that kind of thing anymore because this is something that I became aware of recently with the writer's strike. So actors are compensated at higher rates um, for, like, say, the third, fourth, fifth season of a show. The longer the show goes on, the more an actor is paid, which is why um, for streaming platforms and also network network channels too, they don't want to have series go past the second season. That's why like all of these shows. Keep... When Netflix is like killing everything in the water. Yeah, it's like I remember when I first joined Netflix, there was Orange is the New Black, mm -hmm. which was one of my favorite shows when it was when it was happening, and I can't think of a single Netflix show I've liked since. Because <laughs> they're just not investing in the characters yeah. or the worlds that they're building. Yeah. They're just jumping from one new show to the next because yeah. it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, there's some stragglers, though. There's some ones they just can't, like, I think that audience love, like, outweighs what they gain by canceling it. I mean, I think but people that will then fall off because, I don't, maybe it's the quality of writers or the way that Netflix is running these shows where, like, I fell off of Stranger Things. And you know, speaking of 80s nostalgia... I really liked the first season of Stranger Things. Oh, I'm pass. getting a pass. We're <laughs> getting a hard pass. So what I liked about it was I didn't know how sci-fi it was going to be when I started the show. It, like, takes the framework of almost like a true crime. My child is missing. Like, I'm an aggrieved mother and no one's listening to me. And I found that to be very interesting. And then the slow reveal of, like, just how supernatural everything was, I enjoyed. And then I could not get through the second season because I was like, I know how supernatural it is. Like, and that was not... Right. But that's no, also fun. super similar to this one movie that came out called Super 8. Have you ever heard oh, about yeah, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Very was like, similar plot. Yeah, it was J.J. Abrams' like love letter to like Spielbergian 80s movies like E.T. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I saw Super 8 and liked it. I saw Stranger Things that did not like it. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually did finish the first season. But oftentimes whenever I watch a show... And it's just good enough to get me through but not watch the second season. That's worse than if I just picked it up and dropped it because I got <laughs> disappointed and disaffected along yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. Worst possible. Yeah. Did this really start in the 2010s? Like, what kicked off, like, purely kind of retrospective? I mean, there's always been, like, I mean, there was a Flintstones movie in the 90s, and the Flintstones were most popular in the 60s. So, like, there's always been looking back, like, actually, I think the 90s had some of the stranger kind of property reboots, things like Dick Tracy. The Muppets. I don't Looney think the Tunes. Muppets ever went away enough to be nostalgic about I don't think they ever went like six years without a movie or something. Wow, I'm completely not fact-checking that, but yeah. No, there was, yeah. I did, they they kind some of dropped on and off. periods, I guess. But yeah. yeah. I don't know. 
But no, I guess it sort of starts when uh, the Marvel Universe was getting kicked off. So I guess the first Spider-Man film mm-hmm. was maybe the, the genesis, but it took a few years for that yeah. to ramp up. I guess the main problem is just now that you can have a window of 10 years between the original film or series and then the, the um, reboot. reboot film or series. Yeah. But even, even stuff from the 80s, though, it pisses me off because <laughs> it's like they keep trying to retell the same stories. Um, and mm-hmm. this is a criticism I've seen where they try to retell the same stories, but with a different protagonist or lead, oftentimes from an underrepresented background. But Mm -hmm. it would actually do more service um, to people of those backgrounds or cultures to have a new story (laughs) story written and created by someone Uh, of that culture. No, yeah. Instead of just like being given like a, I don't know, token part in a Star Wars movie or something. But yeah, I just assumed you, Maybe this is just bad on my part. I just assumed you hadn't seen any of the Star Wars movies. You just seemed like you'd be above them. But you were like a boy at the same time as me. Like you ended up watching. Yeah, I watched Star the original yeah. <laughs> Revenge of the, the Sith movie in theaters, yeah. I think. Which I can't wait to hear Palia's take on that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, but no, I actually, okay, this is, I don't actually want to reveal this, but I guess I will. But um, <laughs> over the past six months, the only TV show I think think I've watched is um, Ahsoka on Disney Plus or maybe I actually if there was a recent Mandalorian season I watched that too but I've watched well, sorry. I watched <laughs> the, the viewers at home I'm making a look of shock and disappointment at Nathan yeah I mean the writer's strike was going on that's part of it yeah but you can blame I, that okay I don't really relate to um, I don't really relate to realism that much because I'm kind of a freak. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see myself in characters. like, yeah. Especially just because um, I'm straight edge. I don't drink, do drugs, swear, drink coffee, have headaches. I, there's yeah. just a lot going on. So I, I guess I just, I'm more inclined to like aliens. Uh, it's a little yeah. bit more entertaining. Interesting. I, yeah, just <laughs> yeah, that like, I guess hmm, a lot of movies do involve a lot of those. Things. Yeah, for me, like the thing I want to watch the least is the coming of age film where there are teenage <laughs> protagonists who discover who they are through doing bad things. Yeah. Um, although, actually, one of my favorite movies is Lady Bird, which is kind of like that. But you the, aesthetics, the aesthetics of Lady Bird are so good. And also, just like the pace, the plot, the I, narrative. Oh, yeah. I feel like we, I love when we're complete opposites. I was like, because yeah, I quit 10 minutes through Lady Bird. I didn't like how... What, like, you didn't like an alt girl with dyed hair? <laughs> Not in my movies, no. Um, but I don't know. I don't like contrarian characters who are like, uh, F this whole world around me. Not that I'm like some kind of hyperconformist. I just don't like the kind of confidence that comes with those who are like, oh, like everyone around me is brainwashed. I'm something different. I think mostly because I think that sometimes, and I, but I hate myself when I think that. So I don't like when... I'm getting fed a main character who's like the special one in a conformist environment. Yeah. I hate the movie Dead Poet Society so much. Oh, wait one moment though. But Lady Bird is actually a good way to tie back into some of the stuff we were thinking about with mm-hmm. Sodaji. So in Lady Bird, you wouldn't know this because you didn't finish the movie, mm-hmm. but she starts out the film going by Lady Bird. By the end of the film, she sort of reconciles with her mother, reconciles with her hometown finds herself, has peace with it, and then she starts going by her birth name. Um, but, you know, 
over the course of the last week, we were working on a docket together where we were discussing um, translation and words and things like that. But I do think that uh, there is a lot of power in words, uh, particularly around people's names. Uh, and I mentioned in the docket that one of the things I like to do is ask people the story of how they got their name mm -hmm. as an icebreaker. Because I teach at a foundation on the side with youth. Mm -hmm. um, as a, it's just something to do in my spare time. Yeah. But what is the story of how you got your name? I feel like that is a very good icebreaker. That's why I feel bad because like anyone else's story is usually like, oh, I'm named after like this or my mom liked this. Or sometimes we'll get like a, my parents loved this movie and named me after it. Um, I, always, I don't know, not to, not to cast a side eye at that. Um, but my name comes from my dad's best friend who passed away a year uh, to the day exactly before I was born. So his death day is my birthday. And so when I was born, my dad called his parents, who you know have, always have a very tough day who, when that year comes, when that um, day comes around. And so he asked them for permission and named me after um, their son. And so I'm very like protective. I don't know, I really like my name. I wouldn't think of going by anything else. Um, but also like, uh, it's a very Jewish thing to name someone after a deceased relative, which I do like, because like, only when someone is dead can you truly like look at their whole life in retrospect. Not that like I don't know things can come out about someone after their death, but like it kind of like you know ties a bow in their whole in what their life was about. And there's also less confusion when you just wait for someone to <laughs> die having a name and you give it to someone else. Um, but the guy I'm named after is not Jewish, which I think is is interesting and cool. He was actually his parents immigrated from Germany. So I'm actually a Jewish guy named. That's why you're German spiritually person. German. That's why I'm spiritually German. That's like, <laughs> that's why I was more accepted in Germany than I was in Israel. <laughs> yeah. But no. Um, and then um, that guy I'm named after. His like parents have always been a part of my life. Um, they're like my third pair of grandparents. Um, but yeah, they're very sweet, and they still have their accents because they came over when they were in their like late teens or so. Um, but yeah, they'd always like make such wonderful baked goods for me and stuff. They gave me one of my first beers too. I think such a German thing. But yeah, when I was a kid, I've had non-alcoholic non beer with them as well. They always kept around. Um, but yeah. That's cool. Your name? Your, your origin? <laughs> yeah, so the story of how I got my name was my mom thought she couldn't have children. She tried for years. Um, she then adopted three of my siblings uh, before I was born. And then the stress of them getting adopted caused her ovarian cyst to shrink. And so I was a miracle baby. I was born when my mom was 40. And so she was going to name me like Sterling, Gunther, Otto, Wolfgang. Really cool names. <laughs> They're that, all, those are coming back in a big way right now. Yeah. People love those. Like, those names are way hotter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would have preferred them. But uh, she picked Nathaniel because it means gift from God. I was, again, a miracle child. But... I wasn't as much of a miracle because I have a younger sister who was born when my mom was 42. So she had two yeah. kids. Yeah. But yeah, as I said before, I kind of have nine siblings. It's mm -hmm. complex. But um, yeah, I go by like Nathan. A few people call me Nate, but I don't really prefer that. Yeah, you see a man Nate. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone uh, even go by Nathaniel though? That's like... What? Uh, does anyone even go by Nathaniel? There's not a lot of three syllable like... Yeah, I mean, names. It's unlike Instagram and... In the past on Facebook, when I was on it, uh, I would list my full name. I just feel like my full name has a better ring to it when it's mm -hmm. both the first and last name put together. Yeah. yeah. But oh, also, uh, <laughs> so I, I told you this a f 
few days ago. I actually had a college professor who was into translation theory, mm-hmm. translated entire books by like poets that literary and humanities people care a lot about. But uh, she named herself Nathaniel, but spelled kind of odd, which I think is the most narcissistic thing you can do. Because <laughs> if you're like a loving mom and yeah. you name your child Nathaniel, mm-hmm. that is like an act of love. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you name yourself gift from God, yeah. that is hubristic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the interesting spelling thing reminds me of, I have a, I have a friend whose name is Alexander. Uh, he's just pronounced it Alexander, but it is spelled A-R. And he was asked his parents, and his parents told him, like, that's how Alexander the Great spelled his name. <laughs> and it's not true. They just messed up on the birth certificate. And, like, both husband and wife thought that this was how it was spelled. And he's never, he's never like, thought about changing it or anything. It'd probably get pretty complicated. I feel like few databases in America could handle, like, <laughs> a letter change like that. I feel like that would that's worse than, like, uh, yeah. a large change, you know. I don't like naming people a short name. Um, I knew a Jenny, just full name Jenny, and it was because her parents had seen um, Forrest Gump and thought that Jenny was a good name, which is not taking any of the lessons I took away from Forrest Gump, because Jenny is not like, maybe generously you'd call her a tragic figure, you know, but I don't know, I think she's just a bad figure. (laughs) Also, getting named after someone who died, that would make me nervous personally. Oh, really? You think? You think it's like what foreboding that you're going to die? Because I have news for you. Like everyone dies. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I have this sister. Um, oh, I guess, I guess, yeah. Okay. Me being named or someone who died tragically young is not amazing. I, I, I need to obfuscate this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a sister who had a baby and she named her baby after a mythological figure that had a very crazy birth. <laughs> and then my sister had a crazy birth. Um, but I actually have a recording. Caesar? No, 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 no. No, <laughs> I don't cool. want to. I don't want to. I, I don't. I feel like she might actually care if I say this. So, but um, no, I actually have a recording <laughs> I took of a phone call with her where I told her before. I happened to be recording this because I was doing ethnography stuff at the time. I know oh. it's kind of a lot, yeah. uh, but I, I would. I recorded this audio clip of myself before my sister's child was born. Her being like, "Okay, the baby's going to be born." I'm thinking of this name. And me immediately being like, do you know how they were born? <laughs> and then like warning her against it. And then my sister was obliviously like, oh yeah, their birth was exciting. exciting. I was like, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> I don't want to, um, I don't think anyone wants an exciting birth. What the? It yeah, I can't, I can't tell you, but okay. Yeah. But basically, yeah, my sister almost died in birth. Oh uh, it was not good. But um, yeah, I feel like you need to be careful with that kind of thing. Yeah. For me, I, I have actually a baby name list that's pretty well developed, mm-hmm. and I have some names <laughs> that I should probably think twice about a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But yes, I feel like I also have fallen for the the temptation of being like, oh, that name just sounds cool. Yeah, it's, I don't know. What if you give your kid a cool name and he's not cool? What if he's a nerd? What if he can't handle the stress of having a rad name, you know? My parents, like, my, our alternate names. I forget my, like, if I was a girl alternate names. I think everyone seems to, like, know their, like, opposite gender potential names. But my dad thought about naming me Mirth, M-I-R-T-H, like, Great Joy. And, yeah, it's completely bizarre. Oh, no I one... actually, okay, I didn't ever tell you this, but before I came up with the name for a podcast, Silent Generation, I was thinking of 
because you actually mentioned this to me once, mm-hmm. of having our podcast be our like almost baby names, oh. like Sterling and Murr. Oh, yeah, but you thought it was Murr. Yeah, Sterling and Murr does Isn't it Mirth cool. or is it Murr? Mirth, Mirth. Okay, that's joy. what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. But no, Sterling and Murr sounds like a, like, I hate to use the word, hipster brewery kind of thing. Yeah. You know, where it's like hammer and claw, I don't know. Hammer and like, sickle. Hammer <laughs> and sickle. <laughs> that's like yeah, what I was thinking, yeah. but no, it's always. I mean, you look like you have much. like a Soviet sculpture behind you. <laughs> Do I? Oh, yeah, just very, like, plop art kind of thing. You ever yeah. heard that term? Plop art? What plop is plop art? art? That's, like, if you're in a public space and there's just, like, a giant unwieldy piece of, like, welded metal abstract sculpture. That's plop art. It's just dropped yeah. in there with no context to its surrounding. Yeah. You could, like, the, use, like, the, the Picasso in Chicago of that, but it's so beloved now. There's this really funny th- thing I once read in a art history paper about abstract expressionism where a, p- a painter was quoted as saying, what is the sculpture? It is something that you bump into when you step back to look at a painting. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> within galleries, I guess they're a nuisance, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I like kind of that interdisciplinary beef. Um, my dad was a like fighter pilot, like a doctor to fighter pilots. And um, they have this big thing against helicopter pilots. Because like a lot of pilots truly believe in like the beauty of flight, like the craft of it. And the fact that these, like, I don't know, obviously, they're like, I think, pa- like, smaller passenger aircraft and, like, the old, speaking of nostalgia, like, vintage, like, World War II planes, guys get really into those, you know, like, knowing their different years. But even, like, I mean, me growing up in the 2000s, the F-16 was, like, the symbol of American military might. Um, but the fighter jet guys all said, that, like, do you know how helicopters fly? And the answer is they're so ugly that the Earth repels them upwards. Um, but that was their disc. That was their big own on uh, on helicopter pilots. But no, I didn't know. I mean, I, mean, I just love all men in uniform. I think <laughs> uniforms are great. So no disrespect to either. Mm-hmm. My my dad was always wearing the like green Air Force jumpsuit, and he got us them as well as kids. I did feel it when I, when I, even as a kid, like in that uniform, I was like. I feel amazing. Like, Isn't it just so like good. a jumpsuit? Yeah, yeah, but it's like the the green one, and they have little side pockets and everything. They're actually just very functional. There was um, in high school. There was this one uh, boy who halfway through got like this bright yellow jumpsuit. He was very straight, uh, but I he just liked running around the school in it. <laughs> right. I'm but. just picturing the Kill Bill jumpsuit. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. But no, I don't think of jumpsuits as being a masculine thing. But I don't know. Men pre-1950s were able to make everything masculine. Yeah. I don't know how they did it. Well, my theory on that is um, uh, pants rise. I think that people under, like, you look like, oh, men in uniform look so, like, nice and strong. It's like, think about men in uniform now, like military and police. Those are the few remaining places where men still wear pants at their natural waist, you know? And I think it's just very slimming. It's very flattering. It's one of my little... Like things, but yeah, and like yeah, back to construction workers too. Like they would have been wearing like jeans at that thing, and then now if you go on a construction site, guys are like, you know, this is how you get plumber butt. This is how you get like, <laughs> like with low rise jeans, your gut hangs out. All these, I don't know, all these things. Uh, yeah, I think of when I've been, I don't know, in a uniform or anything. I think there's like a. I've never been in an honorable. Uniform, I suppose. Like the American apparel. I went to a grocery store for a little bit. Um, okay, 
Yeah, so at Ameri- I, was, I am an ex-American apparel employee. Uh, it was the best job I could have had in high school. Mm-hmm. But they make you wear head-to-toe American apparel every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's a good job for a teenager because upon starting and then every six months, they give you an allowance for new clothes. How much was it? It would be like 200 something like that. Yeah. Or actually, it might have been 150 Back then, that could have, that could have gone pretty far. Yeah. Oh, and then you also got a 50% discount. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. But yeah, basically the employees were like living mannequins. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was, um, I have some suits from Suit Supply, and I always wondered how that works with their staff, because it's a lot more expensive than American Apparel stuff. And I, I talked to one of the guys there, and he said that it is like you buy them on installment, kind of, and they can just take it out of your paycheck. You have a discount applied to it, and then you just kind of like pay a little bit towards your suits because they want you to like start and then have five suits, you know, or something that you can cycle out. But yeah. yeah, I think the guys often have the craziest fucking suits in that um, in that store. It's kind of like the hairdresser thing of like how hairdressers often have very like bad overstyled hair. It's because like, I don't know, left to your own devices, like thinking about one thing all the time, you're going to start maybe experimenting <laughs> in ways that you shouldn't out of boredom. But yeah, just a lot of like very, very shortly cropped pants. Yeah, um, and like with a lot stuff. of American apparel employees, upon starting within like a year or two, they would own everything in the store that they wanted. <laughs> um, I was one of those too. Yeah. But yeah, there are people there who'd be, who'd worked for five or more years where like they especially, it was like, I don't need any clothing. I am set for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of been like that too, because mm-hmm. I still have clothing pieces from American apparel that I'm wearing 10 years later. Not anything... Oh, no, actually, um, this hoodie from American yeah, Apparel. There you go. Yeah, so wearing it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, st- still looks fine. Yeah. So No, I have stuff from Los Angeles Apparel, which is the successor to American Apparel after the, the owner, Dov Charney, was pushed out for being a sex pest, uh, rightfully so. But um, I don't know. He's, he's a crafty guy. It seems like he's always going to like land on his feet, basically. He's always going to have some new hustle. And he say. is someone who used nostalgia correctly. Oh, um, yeah. Where I feel like he brought back um, something older, not only in terms of appearance, but also quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also manufactured in America using traditional mm-hmm. methods. Yeah. So it was so much more authentic to... Uh, what you know was being sold a few decades prior because mm-hmm. American Apparel actually it was so for American Apparel the main aesthetic inspiration was the 1978 Montreal Olympics which it which wasn't that far away from when American Apparel kind of launched in 2004 mm-hmm. um, but by that time you know globalization was still w- was still ramping up offshoring was happening very little clothing was being produced in the U.S. anymore. So by the time American Apparel was in full swing, it was the largest clothing manufacturer in the United States. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, he he did nostalgia the right way. Yeah. No, I I didn't realize that. Like, I mean, there is that kind of athletic spirit um, to American Apparel, and yeah, that's like I think what I really like about yeah this. I haven't bought too much. I kind of just buy gym stuff from um, Los Angeles Apparel, like sweat shorts. Um, I thought about buying a sweatshirt from there. Because, um, yeah, if I'm not going to the gym, I'm usually dressed in kind of dressier stuff that, like, American Apparel doesn't super sell. Um, Los Angeles I, Apparel. But, I yeah. mean, over the course of American Apparel's existence, it went from, 
largely like schlubby <laughs> at home yeah. clothing mm-hmm. to being more preppy. Um, I once read this really interesting testimonial from like a British American apparel worker because from her perspective, she had w- words like posh and, oh. and like she was a for, I didn't actually, I wouldn't have realized this if not mm-hmm. for what I read from this random woman. Yeah. But yeah, when she first started, you like, you could wear like the sweatpants to work and you could mm-hmm. show up wearing like a headband. But then by the time I worked at American Apparel, you were expected to wear, like they had like dress shoes you could buy. If you could fit the American uh, Apparel shoes, you had to wear them. That's so fun. I'm usually like such a, yeah, I'm all about like dressier anything, but I don't like, I, I don't like that at all. That seems like a zarification of American Apparel. Like, I don't know. Cause there's that like clubby dressy side of those fast casual places like Zara. I know. I mean, you could get away with anything there, really. Like, there were times I heard anecdotally, like, people basically wore clothing that was transparent to work. You could see their butt. Um, Mm -hmm. I know for myself, I was wearing um, Athletic Mesh a lot. They came out with an Athletic Mesh collection, but it was a single layer of Athletic Mesh, not double. So Mm -hmm. a single layer, you can see right through it. Um, You can see the contours of my body. Oh, yeah, that's very, it doesn't seem like you're right Yeah. Um, No, I still like it, but it's very boyish. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like there are certain garments that make sense for people to wear when they're youth and they're experimenting with what fits their body. For me, I didn't really, I liked that clothing at the time, but I wouldn't wear it now. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I, yeah, there's definitely like clothes I wear that like de-age me a bit. I try and wear dad hats, but I'm afraid they look make me look like a schoolboy, a little bit. Like they don't, they're not a dad hat; they're a boy hat on me. Oh, but like I don't know on yeah American Apparel and like clothing quality and all that kind of thing. Like in in nostalgia, like I forget what this like term is, but it's it's kind of like uh, what is it? The fetish for provenance. Uh, was something I was reading about. And I totally fall victim to this of just like when I hold something physically, I want to think like, where did this come from? And so either I want it to be old or handmade, preferably old and handmade, best combination. Um, But yeah, and so American Apparel has this thing like, oh man, this is made in America. This is like, you know, someone worked for this in my own country. But yeah, and then with vintage stuff, it's just like, wow, this is from like a different time when, I don't know, Things were different and it's made it this far to me and that means it's gonna make it even further according to the Lindy principle. Um, yeah, I, clothing does not hold up as well as other uh, consumable items though. I mean, like a couch or a mirror, like there are thing, other mm-hmm. things you can buy that are much more guaranteed to last, yeah. past, your last mm-hmm. time, past your lifetime. I would say my oldest piece that I own, I got from a vintage um, pop-up in like this industrial stretch of Chicago. And it's this like brown wool knit sweater, the really distinctive collar. But it's it's really fallen apart. <laughs> Honestly, when I bought it, it already had a hole and it's just gotten wider. I think it's from moths. I try and like fight that by putting like cedar blocks in my closets. That keeps moths away. Moths in your house? No, but I don't want there to be moths. <laughs> no. I, I don't think there's a lot of moths in my like squat mid-century I feel like building. moths are like way more realistic to get rid of than other pests. Like yeah. I actually... I had moss in my house at one point, but I was able to get rid of them permanently. Yeah. Which I feel like other insects would have been like you need an exterminator to actually yeah, get yeah. rid of them. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like it's sad when I see that thing kind of fading away. And I like I brought it to my like I was getting it laundered, and I was like, what about fixing these? And 
the tailor was just like, oh, it'd be extremely expensive. I'm like, really? It's just a hole. You just kind of bring it together. But I don't understand seamstressing, mending, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've, I know how to sew by hand. And also with a sewing machine, but yeah. I uh, don't, I don't really want to do that. Usually instead I just sew by hand. When I do it, I never do it the right way where it would actually prevent like a rip from happening again in the future. It's just a temporary fix. Yeah. To actually sew a garment where it's going to be able to stretch in a way where when it stretches again, it won't start to tear. Um, that's, you have to know what you're doing. Yeah, geez. Yeah. yeah. But no, for, you said it was a knitted garment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, yeah, you have to know how to knit to do that. Yeah. That's more than just a needle and thread. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> That's what I feel bad. Like, I, I think I could take better care of the stuff that I own. Like, I, I don't know. I got nice leather shoes. I condition them every so often. But definitely, like, they get a lot of mileages, my mileage before I do clean them. But yeah, it's just like, man, everyone wants to own vintage clothing. No one wants to actually like, do the hard work of maintaining it. But uh, I think one of the like, things I'm nostalgic for that I didn't experience with clothing was that like, a lot of like, the vintage dress shirts I own have like, the name of like, the mill on it, but then they also have like, a second tag of the outfitter that they were sold at. And these were often like, if you live in a big city, you just go to like Brooks Brothers to get your suit and they'd have all this, you know, off the rack stuff. But in smaller markets, um, like I have a shirt uh, from some menswear store in like Nashville. Um, and it's usually just that someone's last name, often a very Jewish last name because we were tailors. And so these outfitters would have just like all the things you need to assemble like a working man's wardrobe. Um, and I guess they were all like They've all gone away. Some of them are still open. Um, like there's a place called the Captain's Quarters in um, Traverse City, Michigan that I think fits the bill. Um, but I think like Men's Warehouse and like maybe, I wouldn't even say department stores killed these. Maybe it was malls. Maybe it was casualification of stuff. But like those, yeah, small town outfitters, like I think the one way they survive is just in like the, the tags on <laughs> the eBay dress shirts that guys like yeah. me buy. I have this one um, vintage garment that it has a tag on the back that says machine wash hot. And I'm always impressed by it because who else produces clothing now that is of such good quality that you can even wash it on hot once? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I only use hot on like, yeah, white sheets. Is yeah, I mean, move. it is a white shirt, but I'm oh, still yeah. always impressed by it. And it's held yeah. up. It, I don't think it looks any different than the day I bought it. Wow, it's yeah. like this, um, it's this knitted golf shirt that has a crust on it that says Sweeney. Actually, one time, no, that was a long time ago. But I have this vague memory of one time this, uh, this somewhat crazy old lady who was watering her lawn, stopping me on the sidewalk and having a whole conversation with me about crests, like family crests. <laughs> nice. um, but I've had other people ask me about this shirt because the Sweeney family, I, know I don't know who they are, but I know I'm wearing a shirt that has their crest yeah. on it. Yeah, white people love that stuff. And white <laughs> people want to have a crest. I, I, I see that, though. There's people who, like, make their own crests for their family, and you can, like, submit them and stuff. Oh, actually, crest registry. my dad has this, like, plaque that my grandfather had that has my, my last name um, and the history of it with a crest next to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a very rare last name. There's less than 150 people in the country with my last name. Oh. But, yeah, I guess I have a family crest. No, oh, no, that's nice. Yeah, I guess you have a very right wing last name. I am not, not going to share my my last name yet on the podcast. Yeah, my last name is Hitler. <laughs> the one Jewish guy with the last name Hitler. No, um, I don't know. 
my, my Irish Catholic side is a lot more like serious genealogy because there's more to find there. Um, and they have like, I don't know, very cool. On the, on the like Welsh side, there's some kind of waspy last names. Um, I don't know, I think those are more fun. On the Irish side, it's just the most standard grab bag of like, you know, um, Irish last names. No like mix or O's or anything in those. I always thought those were kind of fun. Um, apparently like having an O name, like O'Shaughnessy is really annoying because apostrophes can mess up a lot of like database systems and stuff like that. But, yeah. Uh, um, and then like on the Jewish side, my grandpa doesn't even have a middle name. He always told me they were too poor to afford one, uh, which is just, I don't know, just bullshit. But <laughs> it was like they, he always seems to have a snappy answer for everything. Um, yeah. My middle name is my mom's last name. That, I like that. So that's, very, that's very Jewishy as well. That's very like, <laughs> that's like Joseph Robinette Biden. I don't know. Bring that back. So do you have any final takes on Saudaji or nostalgia? Bring it back to Saudaji. Um, I'm just, I feel like I should give people like one example of it, but I don't know. I think that now that I like, now that I know the word, I should go out there and like try and catch it the next time I like feel it. You know, I think it's the positivity that I like sometimes find hard (laughs) not to sound very morose, but no, every time I'm trying to think of something that I miss, I like do actively miss it, and it doesn't feel good to miss it. Um, when I read the profiles of the people you interviewed, one of them stood out as being yeah more melancholic than the other ones. I think that was a girl that you interviewed, right? Yeah. Um, and I kind of identified with that one too. Like, I don't know. I don't sweetly miss a lot of things. I. I mean, I don't, I don't wish for some kind of world where like every relationship you've ever had is like carried on to the present day. No one dies. Like you never move. Like I know that, yeah, change is a part of life, but no, I think I'm a pretty like, I think I can be a little caught in the past sometimes when I think about stuff. Yeah. So I think Sodaji is a good emotion for people to be aware of and think about because it's another way to feel connected to people. In the modern world, a lot of people's interpersonal connections have diminished and it's a good thing to miss people. You know, the absence of love should be longing. And when you know that you miss someone, you know that you at least love them. It's, mm-hmm. There's something poetic to it, and there's a lot of poetry that people find in Sodaji. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we should play a very like sad, longing Brazilian song as the outro. I'll have to find something. So there is a genre called Fado. Um, Fado is a a musical genre from Portugal, and it's sort of like blues, but it predates American blues. Um, If you go to like Porto or Lisbon, you'll find bars where people sing Fado. I'm not as much a fan of sad music. I tend to listen to stuff that's like 180 BPM. Oh man, no, I love sad music. I listen to the saddest music possible, I think, but... um, I love this band. They were just like, I guess they're a super group. I don't think they'd call themselves that. Um, but they were called Little Joy. And so it's um, the singer of Los Hermanos, which is Rodrigo Amarante, which is the guy who did the Narcos theme song. You know, people really love him nowadays. But he's Brazilian. And then the drummer from The Strokes. Uh, and then female vocalist Binky Shapiro. I think it's a fun name, Binky. Um, but yeah, they released the album in 2008 and they have like, I think two songs off the album are in Portuguese. Um, and they're all just very like longing songs. Like as I learned about Sodaji, like I think I really thought back to this album. Put it on in the background also as I was writing the docket. Um, and then also as I was writing the docket, um, I was just like playing Spotify radio and um, 
some, a song called Homesickness came on, which is like just an instrumental song uh, by the artist Emahoy Tsege Mariam Gebru, who was uh, Ethiopian. She was trained like formally in music. She then became a nun, like left music behind um, and then returned to music, actually like, like played music for the government in some way. And then when the derg like military junta took power in Ethiopia, she was just pushed out to Jerusalem actually um, due to her religious beliefs. Um, and so she has like three songs about homesickness. And I don't know, I think with an, with an instrumental song, whatever the title is kind of then colors your perception of it and you can't shake it. But I do think that if I heard this song and I didn't know the title of it, I think I would still know that it's about at least longing, maybe not homesickness. I think I'd know that. Um, she has other good music too, though. I definitely recommend it. Um, it's yeah, good. so it sounds that after discussing this, you're sort of buying into the romanticized um, longing and poetry around Sodaji. Yeah, man. Whereas I, I like, after, you know, researching <laughs> it for a year, fully convinced it's translatable, fully convinced <laughs> that it's translated in practice. Mm -hmm. But no, I do think it does describe something that mm -hmm. is unique and people aren't even really aware that there's a way to miss people without um, any negativity, yeah. even though they might do it sometimes. Yeah. Um, I will say, I do have a certain saudade for the early stage of a relationship that I had where it started and we had just lots of free time and we just like fully fell in deep with each other. Um, and I think I knew the relationship was gonna reach its end kind of when I experienced that longing while still in the relationship, I was, we both changed a lot over the course of it. It was like two years. Um, That's one of the things they say about Sardaji actually, is that you can experience it for someone who's still present in your life. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I mean, I read some sad cases like in your um, piece about like having longing for someone with like dementia, you know, who is no longer who they were. And so you have Sardajis for like their previous state. And I guess it was, yeah, it was me longing for that person in a different form from maybe kind of myself in a different um, form as well. Um, but yeah, not to be a complete bummer, but yeah. But also, yeah, not, not a great amount of positivity as I plumb those emotions. Yeah. Um, well, I hope that our listeners learned a bit about this and can approach longing with a bit more positivity mm -hmm. um, now that they know about this term. Yeah. Yeah, have a good one. Thanks for listening.